Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. This conversation is unconventional on many fronts with our guest this week Sri Lakshmi Ranganathan talking about her career story. When you almost think that it's been all about technology given that she started her career at Hindustan Aeronautics Limited working on the light combat aircraft building and understanding complex computer systems that went into the creation of a fighter aircraft she reveals that her true passion lay in bringing people to collaborate and come together which led her to become a program manager her insights come from pure experience and discovery of the role never having been formally trained in it and approaching it with a passion and purpose She shares her views on the role and her career through contrasts across time and ways of working. What do you need to have within you to accept the role and its outcomes? She dwells at length on influence without authority and providing a platform where there is an equal voice for all who come together to build a product or a solution. Throughout this conversation, Sri weaves in stories across her career of 30 plus years with fresh perspectives on several topics around program management, volunteerism and happiness in life. Listen on. Hi Sri good evening and a very warm welcome to you to the Software People Stories podcast this is a conversation that's been waiting to happen for a very long time and i'm really looking forward to it yeah me too chitra it's been a while we've been planning but uh, somehow never got to schedule it i'm glad we got got around to doing this so can we start with uh, where your entry into the world of science and technology began how far back do you want to take us and how do you want to narrate the beginning of it all so i think let's go to the very beginning <laughs> the story beginning right so the very beginning is uh, when you decide right whether you, what you really want to do in your subject area so in india it's always been a doctor or a an engineer that's what my family also was thinking and since my sister was a doctor my mom my dad said you have to be a doctor too just because we had the books and everything and i was good in science in fact one of my highest marks was in biology and chemistry uh, topped the school in fact for biology and chemistry and stuff like that but mathematics was also my forte and so i just would not be able to do medicine no way that was not in my thing at all so i went ahead and took the maths stream it was very hard to get into a good intermediate college then because of the icsc and the marks and all that stuff anyway went through that got into the math science mpc we used to call it there in hyderabad i studied in hyderabad all my life all my schooling and then uh, competitive exams for engineering got into engineering school we had only two engineering schools at the time government run was able to get into the engineering school in electrical electronics and then moved into a first joined electrical because i had marked it wrong in my form so according to my rank i could have gotten to electronics so most people were most of the girls were doing electric electronics at the time so went into electro ece even though that i had no clue what i was getting into so computer science was not yet uh, big this was 1980 so got into engineering college studied my computer i mean uh, electronics and communication engineering 
that's when the journey began to be part of uh, technology. Science and technology was always my forte. I don't think I, I was interested in literature and other things, but somehow never really viewed that as a career. And neither did my family. Uh, so that's when it all started. Finished the four-year engineering and then you get through campus recruitment, right? So uh, I didn't get into campus recruitment, but in all India exams used to be conducted in those days. There were many small companies coming up, you know. There was Wipro, which was not yet into science and into technology then, but they were doing a lot of sales, uh, marketing. So some of my friends joined that and uh, my dad would not allow me to get into private companies. So I wrote the exam for all India exam for the uh, public sector, HAL, Hindustan Aeronautics Limited. And so got in there, started the journey of uh, being in a huge public sector undertaking. So I can talk about uh, the program management there itself, actually, because that's one my later journey took me to be doing coordination and program management. So went and got a master's degree in electrical engineering again. They sent us to IIT to you know, study whatever branch we wanted. So again, it was in VLSI design, LSI fabrication, so all high tech. I don't think I ever used any of that in my work at HAL because it was communication again. So I did B-Stoke, UHF, TACON. I still remember those days. And then we got deputed to this huge uh, project called LCA, Light Combat Aircraft. I did a couple of um, modules for that, in the sense, not the aircraft, but the electronics piece of it. That was the LCA. And I can get into the program management part of that because it was a project definition phase of that big, huge aircraft that was being indigenously built by India. It flew 15 years later. Now that's the Tejas aircraft that is being a big asset to the Indian Air Force uh, and feel really good about being part of that initial phase of that project. Very small iota, I can't even pinpoint, maybe a small a dot, a mustard kind of thing that we were part of. I don't even know if what we uh, approved and what we studied about got into the aircraft at all. It was all collaboration. So project definition phase in those days was like waterfall method and it took like a huge aircraft means it takes like forever. Very interesting. When you said project definition phase, it's almost a phrase that we don't hear of, let's say in the last couple of years, at least when it comes to initiation of any project. I'm very curious, what was that like? Uh, this is a project definition phase, PDF, they call it, uh, PDP. PDP, yeah, we used to keep calling it PDP. So once they said PDP, we would just use that word. And all of us had to get trained in a lab, like we had a mission computer that was going to be used and it was all going to be fly-by-wire and, you know, 1553 bus and whatnot. So we had to learn all these new things that the aircraft was going to use and the mission computer was going to have all these, um, you know, uh, data that would be uh, go through the bus and then it would be somehow analyzed and distributed and stuff like that. So, uh, and they were writing some of the stuff in, or at least uh, trying to do something with ADA, the language, so in my early stage, I sent us to ADA classes, you know. So a bunch of us used to go daily to an ADA programming class. And that was like so archaic, we thought, but it was very fascinating to go through that programming language. I think they wanted us to learn about the modularity or something like that. So all of us went through ADA programming. So it was all, you know, it was such a long drawn out process, right? So there's no hurry as such. Every day you do small little baby steps. And the definition phase itself was for two or three years. 
because it was such a huge thing. All the pieces should come together. We used to have all our regular stand-up meetings and this and that, but the pace would be so much slower than what is happening today. Today, you can't even think of definition phase for two years. But then even bringing all these people together, getting the experts in various fields, the engine people, the you know, electrical people, the, you know, the gyros and the tacos and whatnot, the, you know, the on the navigation system people. It was just a humongous effort because of the nature of that project. So that's how my journey started as a, into uh, the technology and very, very high tech. And some of my colleagues still are at HL and there are some of them retired there as, uh, you know, divisional heads and general managers and stuff like that. So they must have just been there and continue to work in this kind of uh, environment and space. So I was in the LCA. Some of my friends were in the ALH, they call it the helicopter division. That's also a good project now. So it's good to see that these projects that we started with are now actually materialized many, many years later, 15 years later, 10 years later. They are asset to the country and they are actually a project that is an entity that is existing today and working very well. So that's a good thing to know. For us, it was so much of, you know, new technology, right? Computers, prime computers, whether it was all like mini and micro computers and large computers. That's what we were working with. And programming was so machine language. We would learn things in assembly language and things like that. That's what we were doing. And then in definition phases, it was all like, you know, very just looking at specs, reading those data specs. It was quite laborious and boring, (laughs) but we had to do it. Someone needs to do that. Maybe later in the stage, it became more interesting, but then I left HAL because we were too young to feel that, oh, we might be here forever and public sector was not my thing. So then wrote the GRE and came to this country, came to America uh, for a PhD, actually. And uh, again, it was in um, BACIS, that was a program at Temple University, Business Administration, Computer Information Systems. Then again, it was a pioneer thing. It was just coming up. But for me, you know, (laughs) unfortunately, I'm, I just dropped things off, I guess. So I didn't even go through one semester of that because I met and married my husband and we moved to the other coast totally from East Coast to the West Coast. So again, another big transition. I didn't feel very comfortable doing this business administration kind of thing because I was always in technology and then doing like economics and, you know, all those things were kind of very strange to me. And I, I should have pursued it and maybe it would have taken me in a different angle altogether. But uh, I didn't take the, that path. I continued to be in technology again. Went back to the West Coast, went and got another master's degree in computer science. Worked really hard. And it was very, very difficult because uh, that school that I went to was a very small school, Oregon Graduate Institute, and very, very tough. So uh, databases means a project in database would be like you actually build a database, like what Oracle does. A join operation or something like that. You know, it was very difficult. So I kind of uh, really dreaded that whole master's program. Then I was transferred to the state school and it was much easier because we were the first uh, batch of uh, computer science students from Portland State University. Went there, it was a little easier, but then we learned so many different things like small talk and other languages we learned there, which was object-oriented. Very nice language, but um, never got very popular because other languages took over. Did that and then finally went uh, joined Intel as an intern. And uh, Intel was the only big company there in Hillsborough. 
And again, I was doing some Unix internal kind of things. So it was very hands-on things, you know. And my mentor in Intel or my manager there said, oh, you're so mature, you're doing so much. But he didn't realize I've already gone through so much, finished the HEL work and this and that and the other. So it was not like I was a fresh graduate, actually. I was already had some work experience and then um, they were happy with me and offered me a full-time position. And that was it. So stayed with Intel for like 15 years. And just like my dad said, you know, public sector stay forever. I stayed in Intel for the longest time. And until we made our journey back to India in 2004. And then at Intel again, I two years later, I met you, Chitra, 2006. So <laughs> it's been such a long time. Now, I should talk to you about my journey at Intel. There, I started off in, uh, you know, uh, the technology only. It was very interesting. One, uh, my first job was in the factory automation. So it was uh, like two machines. Again, it was, I always connected to these hardware things, you know, chemical vapor deposition. It was, I still remember that Watkins Johnson, big, huge machine, which does uh, PN junctions. So I, I went back to my MTech days where we actually created a PN junction in my VLSI class. And I was in the fab wearing the suit and going into this fab and doing uh, not the chip design, but uh, assisting in the software to, to one of the stages of the chip design. So it was chemical vapor deposition. There was another thing which called LRC rainbow where they actually etch those uh, silicon wafers. So it was very interesting to go into the fab and actually wear your bunny suits. Like today, everybody wears, because of our corona here, <laughs> we were fully clad and go, right? By the PPE. And that was a very nice thing. But again, I was doing software engineering and just doing this. But even though I'm not really, I never was very fascinated or interested in coding and things like that. But somehow that was what I was trained for. I just did it, but it was not my passion really. Because naturally for me, what comes is coordination and getting people together and, you know, organizing. And that's what I like to do most. And that's what I do best, I think. So anyway, I did this thing for a living, I should say, a software engineering job. But I was always coordinating things. Like I was part of the uh, Intel uh, Diversity Council. I headed that and uh, the Intel India thing, which uh, everywhere there was something that was an aside thing. I always took that on and I was leading those efforts. And uh, the play group and stuff like that, even the, when my kid was born, I organized play groups, weekly activities and things like that. I think it just comes naturally to me. So then I went off and did a few more things within Intel in the architecture labs and other things. Continue to do this technology thing only. Then I went into a server division where Intel was trying to build um, a server out of the box. You put everything, I mean, that time web servers were becoming very popular. So Intel was trying to sell a web server in the box. Like it come, you you sell it and people open it up and then they bring it up and it, you have everything. What is happening today? Like the Chromebook and other things, right? And um, it was a server that they were doing. Even uh, somehow that didn't take off, I think. And uh, we all got uh, distributed to other divisions. And then I went back to my old division where I did my um, internship. And uh, my first manager, he was very happy to, for me to go back there. And I stayed in that group for the longest time, in the server division. And uh, this was another mid-size and uh, high-end servers they were building. So I did a lot of work there. An opportunity for this coordination work came after uh, a couple of years in that group. So in 2002 is when I actually moved into my, I got a title of a program manager, finally. And my manager says, Shri, I think uh, this is a natural fit for you. As of after so many years, I found my calling, you know. So... After getting into that program management job, which was an official program manager, so you go and do 
the same reporting things and get all your pieces together and make sure it works and look at the risks and mitigation and everything in the standard program management without any, I haven't done any PMI, I haven't done any anything at all in training wise. But because I had the domain expertise, it was uh, quite uh, easy to do program management there. And for two years, I did that. And then we decided to move back to India. So in 2004, I came back with Intel. I came back and I did uh, program management for that chip validation division, which again went back to the chips. And uh, that was uh, okay, but uh, it was totally hardware, analog and all that. So I didn't like that. Then I moved into an IT division where uh, I became a managed people manager and decided to try that. So we were two in a box. There was another guy who was a program manager and I was a people manager. So I was doing that for a little bit. And somehow I cannot do people management because I think I do uh, management by influence better than by authority, (laughs) which is what a people manager should do. And then I found this opportunity at NetApp and uh, moved there in 2006. It was, a, it, was, it was not the core group that we were part of there. We were not an on-tap, the main division, but we were on the host utilities, which was an aside sort of thing. But I think we did a couple of projects with the uh, San on-tap uh, group, which was uh, mainstream for NetApp. But that was a wonderful experience there with so many uh, different things. And we did a lot of good work there. It was completely a program management job. This was like walk in the park and uh, the way you've explained in so many ways, the different kinds of technologies that you've worked with. It's extremely interesting. I have so many questions to ask. I'd like to start with discovering your natural inclination and we'll talk about that a little later. But when you look at collaboration and or you articulated it in the context of it um, being part, so much part of your career right from day one, if I may say so, it seems to have been a thread right from there, collaborating and the coming together of different functions to, let's say, deliver and create one big system. When you look at collaboration, what are some of the experiences that you can remember or recall from there that probably have been something like aha moments or learning moments for you? I'm sure a lot of people listening to this could take away because these things I feel, things like uh, collaboration, influencing without authority are universal. So what would be some of those experiences that you can share? Yeah, collaboration is an integral part of the whole uh, creating any product, right? Because not one person can do everything. You have to make sure that uh, you respect and give equal authority and responsibility, equal weightage to all branches of your the group. I didn't talk about this, but at Intel, we had something called a map day. That was a very great collaborative planning effort. It was a whole one or two days we used to take, they used to send us off to some offsite. It would be a rigorous, more than 10 hour uh, exercise uh, where everybody sat together, even a person who was, uh, you know, it's very amazing. Like when you start a project, you haven't even built a board or anything. Everything is up in the air and you're talking about shipping it and supporting it, (laughs) which is kind of so strange. So in collaboration, uh, you have to think of all of this, right? So the person who's just beginning to do the drawing board and the person who's going to sell your product and then support it later, all those people are coming together. And because they need the timelines, they need to know when they have to be get engaged. So in that one or two days, we all sit there, pick a huge map and do all this kind of exercise. And it's very interesting to see how everybody pitches in at the right time. You don't have to be engaged every time through the journey, but you need to 
come in at the right time and leave at the right time. Once your product is already out there, you're in deployment, QA may not be that interested in, that engaged. But then, of course, when the feedback loop happens and the bugs come in, then they come back in again for hot fixes or whatever. So that's the whole collaboration exercise that would happen at the beginning of any project. Now, going back to my aircraft company exercise, that was a huge collaboration. I mean, that you could actually see it. It's very interesting. You know, we'd all go to this big, uh, big, huge meeting. In ADA, they used to have this ADE, they used to have a huge big meeting and the CEO, I think he's, he just retired or a few years later. They would get us all together. It was so important to have that team, one message kind of thing. What are we here for kind of a thing. At the end of the tunnel is this big aircraft. At the end of the tunnel is this big server in a box that we need to ship. So that vision, you should keep it, keep in mind all the time. So that's why I tell my people here, they don't understand, you know, because I'm coming back into the workforce and I work with a lot of young people, their attitudes, their, the way they think very short term, right? Because I'm thinking like 15 years later, I'm shipping an aircraft. These guys are like two months, two weeks later, we'll have a sprint and we'll release something. Then that kind of a mode. So Telling them, I attend all the business update meetings and other things because it's important to know uh, how everything's connected. The youngsters I feel in my group right now are not bothered about this big picture. They're like, okay, what are we doing today? What are we doing tomorrow? That's about it. Agile, all these agile methodologies and all that come into picture. And then they don't really care. You know, they say, okay, they are just releasing something. It's fine. I just have to do this part and I'm done. But that's not collaboration. Collaboration is right from the beginning to the end. Feedback loop and all that stuff, right? It's important. So every meeting I try to tell them, we have to tell engineering that they should not be doing so many bug fixes. Why don't we have these people tell them to uh, modify their test cases to include that particular issue that a customer found or something like that? That doesn't seem to have that kind of a vision anymore or the patience for it even. So I feel that something, maybe it's not needed in this day and age because of such a fast-paced kind of um, work and also the tolerance level, right? I mean, if it, if it breaks, it breaks. Okay, we'll just throw it, we'll do another or we'll know we'll get a patch, things like that. So the attitude itself has changed. So I think that's why I know I, I think I drifted away from the actual collaboration as such in a traditional kind of way, a traditional kind of a, a definition. Collaboration can mean many things. But at the heart of it all, it means uh, being staying together as a team and understanding your end goal and understanding what is this big picture and keeping that in mind and working towards it. If everybody in the group does that, then you'll have a successful pro- successful product. Like in uh, and also the staying together, right? Nowadays you can't because of COVID is one thing. The other is the globalization. It's very hard to co-locate. Previously, studies showed that you have to co-locate to be able to collaborate better. Uh, the BOSE was one of the uh, case studies was done where when they grow to a little bigger than some like 20, 40 people, they'll move them into another group kind of thing. To, uh, to do excellent design and stuff, you have to have a very small core group is what they, th- they thought. But I think that may not apply anymore because of the way the world has changed in many ways. One is the globalization. The other is this pandemic really has changed a lot, changed everything in the way we do business. Today, in fact, we had a meeting at our workplace and there's a going back to work kind of thought that everybody's doing now. And they're very respectful and they say not all countries, not all areas or regions of the world are the same. Before it wasn't like that. They say, oh, everybody's the same. You know, why can't they do this? Why can't they do that? Now, this pandemic, I think it really has opened up the eyes saying that it is not the same everywhere. The ecosystem is different. We have to respect that. Collaboration can be done 
uh, in more ways than just co-location. I think it's come together beautifully because there's been a lot of contrast in your response which which gives a lot of food for thought in my opinion okay <laughs> it, it, uh, there was a good uh, exploration on the topic in fact the other thread that's coming up is what you mentioned slightly before in the conversation is you believe that you're somebody who likes to influence without authority i think that there's a lot that people can take away from that especially when i look at roles like uh, you know that of a product manager these are typically people who you don't manage people but you bring together the capabilities and strengths of different functions into creating a product so in some sense a program manager and a product manager from a collaboration standpoint and an influencing standpoint do a lot of uh, this co- in the course of their daily work so with respect to influence without authority how have you nurtured it or cultivated it over the years and you know what is it that stands out for you in terms of being able to influence people without authority so that uh, see i think this program management role or this whole coordination role is a very um, thankless job only people who can stomach that in the sense who can get gratification for themselves by a job well done nobody needs to tell them that they feel so when everything goes well the credit is not given to the coordinator when everything something goes wrong the blame is given to the coordinator so you should be able to stomach that but everybody will be calling out your name that means you are the influencing person you are the center and you'll be wanted in all these meetings even though you don't want to go they'll say you have to come to this you have to come to this you know i mean they want you to take this things that means you are important but that that's one thing about this role so that's why you see very few people who want to make program management as their career there are consultants and other things that do it like they come in they look at your thing and they design something for you and leave so that's different but in a, in a company to have a program management job people view it in a different way they don't sometimes they don't view it as an influential role they just view it as a tactical role where you go and you run this agile you do the scrum master thing and you do this and do that that is not what program management is all about that is what you call it a tactical thing but program management is about all of that it's like you have a bigger picture i always have a bigger picture because i'm working with so many teams and what some other people don't see i see and i'm able to create all these maps and make all these plans and see the dependencies and if there's anything that is one one missing the other we can catch it of course sometimes we miss that because we have so many things on our plate and we might miss it too we have a very important role to play as a program manager and as a release coordinator things like this we call it by different names every company calls their uh, runs these things as different things some are release management some call them program managers some call them coordinators whatever it is i feel that it is by definition is influencing because you are not really responsible like even now right i have a, a one role in this my current job i am a program manager there's another manager in india who's a manager of those people but all those people talk to me all the time and they are asking me about you know this that and the other and they talk more freely to me because there's no i don't have any authority over them i'm just there to help them so i think that by nature by definition makes it much more easy for other people to approach you so that is the advantage of being not being responsible for them in a people manager kind of a role in that way itself you can influence them because you can be their guide you can be a mentor you can because they talk more freely to you 
And I've heard this many times in many of my roles in VMware also. I don't think we stopped at NetApp, but then I went on to Cisco and then I went on to VMware. Lots of things on my journey, right? And VMware also was a program manager, release manager, we called it. And uh, it was really a good job. We were doing cloud infrastructure management. But again, there also I got involved in many other activities within the company. And we had this small little group, ladies group also. People would come to me and they would say anything, any problem they had with their either technology-wise or otherwise, they would come and talk to me and say, you're very approachable. That's because I'm a program manager and most of us in that role, I think will be very approachable because we are not judging anybody. We're just, that's the kind of, uh, that leads to more influence, I feel, by being, uh, not being having any reportees as such and doing only cross-functional uh, uh, management. Everyone will call you out though because you are a key. Uh, see, in music, when a conductor does the music, he's most important. He's there running the show and making all the you know orchestra really be in concert. Program manager does that, but they do not get the credit of the conductor, I feel, today. But once in a while, there'll be a mention of, oh, you know what, this person does this, this, that, and the other. There'll be a director, there'll be someone else who got all the credit, but it's okay. It doesn't matter because you yourself will have the satisfaction of having achieved or done something. I think influencing is uh, just there, a part of the role. And it's very easy to do that because of uh, not having the pressure of uh, uh, having reportees, I think. Yeah, I like the way you put it all together because it really gives a sense of what all you can do and build a strong fabric, I feel, in an organization, you know, when it comes to collaborating between groups. And I've recognized this several times in my career as well. All will always be uh, grateful to have had the experience or the chance to work with program managers. Uh, and like you said, they very often become the go-to people. I can certainly relate with what you've shared just now. And from here, I wanted to move into a topic I've sensed over the years of having known you, uh, which is really important. And it comes out in many contexts in all the interactions that I've had with you. And it's to do with equity, fairness, and other work that you've uh, you know, done over the years. Where did this start first happening? Was it always naturally with you uh, to just ensure that there is equity all over the world? Uh, what did that lead you to do? You know, would you like to share a little bit about that? Equity, actually, that's the thing. No, I mean, you grow up in a family that you have all these brothers, sisters, not everyone's the same. I don't know how, what it was, but we, my sister and me went to the same school. We all go to the same, go through the same uh, trainings and stuff, but each one molds, is molded in a different way. Way back in school, I always uh, volunteered. Volunteerism is what my, the fabric of me is, I think, you know, stepping up and doing things. That's why this program management also is this thing. You step up and do things for even not, uh, you know, expecting any result, not expecting any reward, I mean. So uh, it's a selfless giving kind of a thing. You need to be that way naturally to survive and to continue to do program management because like I said, it's quite thankless sometimes. In school, uh, I always volunteered and uh, I was part of the, you know, Red Cross and the social worker group and all that stuff. And in fact, uh, I got the shield for the best social worker and the best math and science student, but I treasured the social worker shield more than the other one because I felt that was very, very important for me when I got that recognized as the best social worker. Because if any activity that happened in school, I would be running there and, you know, they did a medical drive, something I would go and ask my dad and go 
get buy medicines and go give it. Go the tour to the home for the age. I would go for that. Anything. So I would be part of all of that. And continued. I think in engineering we didn't do much of that. I don't know why it was, but engineering was like you know just maybe it was too much of studies or what. But in my college it was a lot of time off as well. But for some reason it wasn't so much of volunteerism at that time. Uh, in the engineering college, but we always socialized. We always, I always had people come over. All my friends tell me, "Oh, we always visited you and stuff like that." So that I continue to do. Part of being a people person and gathering people always and doing all that stuff. Then when I went off into my workplace, I think there also this, like I said, right? We have a very strong group in HAL, and we were always together, collaborating and being together. And my lifelong friends uh, from then are there today too. You're talking about the equity, right? So we, uh, I don't know. I think in those days, somehow, never really thought about all these things because you had just go to work, come back, go to work, come back, kind of a thing. Because those days were long and journeys were hard and stuff. But then when I came to the US, I don't know if that's the kind of equity you're talking about. What? <laughs> I think it's more around how you, as Sri Lakshmi, have worked with the world. In uh, in my eyes, you've always strived to ensure that you know there is no differentiation of any sort. In fact, even when you <laughs> mentioned this earlier in the conversation, it doesn't matter which function you belong to, but everybody has an equal seat at the table when it comes to you know delivering a project or you know working on a product and i feel the same applies to your your principle of how you look at people and societies and everything else that you do so you try to bring yeah. that in whether it's it's your own behavior uh, the way you are with people and so on so that's what i meant so that's what my mom always says. Uh, oh, they call me Chima at home. She says Chima is very bold. She'll just take anything on, kind of a thing. That's because I have no fear. I have no fear of losing or of uh, being degraded or uh, reprimanded or anything because I feel that's nothing to do with equity, e- equality and equity or whatever that is. But it's like I feel that you just have to come together and give your best in whatever you can do, and you cannot be best in everything. You have some small thing that you're best in, so just do that. And we talk about in a lot of our management things, right? Recognize your weaknesses, enhance your strengths or something like that. It's not like don't keep on harping over your, oh, I'm not good at this, not good at this. That's fine. Just accept that you cannot do this, but you can do this other thing really well. So enhance that. And that's the way it is. So like I always remember, I think I've mentioned this before too. There's this little, uh, you know, young adults book called uh, The Giver in which they monitor, it's it's a whole science fiction thing and it's about egalitarian society and stuff. And they have this little, they keep watching these kids when they're growing up and they figure out uh, what they're good at and they make them be that. It could be a lawyer or a, you know, a doctor or a, you know, scientist or a mother or whatever. You just have to be best in what you do. And if the world can be that way, it'll be really great, right? Like there could be people who be gardeners, there could be cooks, there could be, you know, uh, scientists, and we don't have to yearn to be that, that other person. Then there'd be so much more happiness if everyone accepts that this is what I can do and that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to be happy doing it. And everybody thinks that way, but of course, that's a very idealistic world. And that's why we have all these ego problems. Oh, that's better than this and this is better than that and whatnot. And it leads to a lot of unhappiness around us. I, my passion is for always the underserved. I've always feel that I have to be with the 
under uh, underserved person because they can't step up and speak up. The other loudmouth people will always be heard. Even in our calls now, right? When I have my daily calls and stuff, there'll be one guy will be dominating, never listens, you know? And I try to push, push, push. Other people are not very quiet, but I'm much older in the group and I'm brave enough and I'm not worried about anything. So I speak up, but most people are just quiet and they take whatever he says, kind of a thing. You're not supposed to do that. You know, that's the equity part of it. Everybody should come to the table and express their views and others should respect it because you never know where the greatest ideas are going to come from. You know, if you silence people, you're going to lose out a lot. So it's very important to keep an open mind and hear people, I feel. I think what you articulate best is there's multiple ways of, you know, looking at a particular, whether it's it's just a phrase or a word or something. But I think what is coming together is certainly a lot of your experience. So I didn't realize that, you know, we've been talking for quite some time now. I want to ask you what kind of message you'd like to leave for youngsters who want to pursue a career in IT or technology? Actually, IT and technology has morphed so much that the field is really, really vast. I don't think you should do technology for the sake of technology because uh, whether whatever field you do, you have to do technology today. It's not going to work otherwise because everything is online and apps and whatnot, right? Uh, and I see that people are interested in, say, accounting and art and, uh, you know, music. They all still gravitate to, they, they do technology, but they get back into, uh, do, do art through technology, that kind of stuff. So it really doesn't matter what uh, the, the message is. You have to pursue your passion. And some people talk about the three C's or something, right? You have to balance it out. Your, what you're good at what will earn you some money. You can't just ignore that because you need a livelihood unless you have a, a big an estate or something in your name. You have to have a living. It's important. You have to have happiness at the end of the day. You can't just be doing something and not uh, liking it and just doing it for the money or for your livelihood. You must always look at the long long term. And uh, the other thing is um, it doesn't have to be in technology. It can be in technology allied subject, allied and uh, I don't think anybody can escape technology today. So many things changed as we moved from like 30 years ago to today, completely changed. And I'm glad I'm still able to engage, still able to learn those tools and technologies, even if it's at a peripheral level and be able to continue to have a job. Uh, Nicely put, simple enough message. I think that's what counts. Having a retrospective from somebody as experienced as you wanted to say thanks so much. This is a conversation that I've been waiting for for a really long time and I'm so glad that it happened. Yeah, thank you, Chitra. It was really good talking to you. I didn't know how the time passed. I think I told a long story here. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com.